Anybody like going to the doctor? No, no. How about the dentist? Heck no, I heard. I did see some people nodding. Okay, weirdos, but it's okay. Um, I think... I think we can all anticipate or, or look forward to going to the doctor or the dentist if something hurts or if we need relief from a bad tooth or something. Um, now, we, we probably don't like going through the procedures to get things fixed or to get things better, going through therapy to get something feeling better. <clears throat> but we do reach a point at times where we're willing to go through a root canal so that our tooth will stop hurting, Right? You ever just reach that point? You're like, whatever you got to do. You know, if you got to cut my hand off to make my tooth stop hurting, cut my hand off. Or anybody like to get stitches? That's fun, right? Well, we don't like it, but we'll do it to stop bleeding, right? But let me ask you not about like bad things or yucky things, but what about just a routine visit? Just a yearly checkup. Some of you are like, what? What are you talking about? Anybody do that? Anybody have a routine? Do you see your doctor every year or every six months or see your dentist every six months or whatever? It doesn't seem right that healthy people would just go to the doctor, right? Let me just go talk to the doctor. Um, So... Show me, show me your hands. If you go to the doctor on a regular basis for a regular checkup when you're healthy, raise your hand. All right. Okay, okay. But now, if, if you've got ongoing treatment for something and you're seeing your doctor, don't raise your hand. I'm just saying you're, everything seems to be fine and you go to the doctor just for once a year or so, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. I was kind of curious to see the reaction from that. We tend to not go to the doctor specifically unless something's wrong, right? I think sometimes we're afraid they'll find something wrong that we don't know about, so we don't go. I don't go to doctors. Why not? Well, because they might find something wrong with me. (laughs) Right, that's kind of the point. Uh, I remember back in my younger days, in my 30s, I was looking for a new family doctor because I just hadn't seen a doctor in a long time. Um, and, and I had gotten some health insurance. That's neat. Um, and I could use it, and I could see a doctor for free once a year just for a regular checkup, so why not? So I showed up. I did all the initial stuff. They took my, my blood pressure, my height, my weight. Doctor will be right in, that kind of thing. Well, he came in, and he looked at me funny. And he said pretty matter-of-factly, why are you here? I, I told him I was just getting a checkup and trying to find a family doctor. And he just kind of out of the side of his eye looked at me and he, he checked my heart, my breathing, my reflexes, asked me if I still felt like a man. We won't get into that. And then he said, you're good to go. And he was kind of shocked that I just voluntarily sought out a doctor when I had no problems to deal with. I didn't go back to him, by the way. And I didn't think that was very professional. Uh, other things weren't professional either. But anyway... But I found another doctor, and I did see him regularly for well visits at least once a year up until last year. Uh, But overall, people just don't go to the doctor just because, hey, let's go talk to the doctor today, right? It's just not a common thing. Why? Because doctors help sick people, 
right? Sick people. Mechanics fix your car when it's broken. Anybody ever just go to the mechanic and say, hey, just, hey, why don't you look at my car? You don't do that, right? They're going to find something wrong, I promise you, right? Mechanics fix your car, dentists fix your teeth, doctors fix your health, right? Who in their right mind would go to a doctor if they didn't need to? Which you should, by the way. That's a public service announcement, I'm just saying. Should be checked out once a year or so. Well, today, we see this principle worked out, but in a different way. And usually with Jesus, with spiritual things, it's a little different than in the natural. And what we see is today is Jesus is going to be dealing with the spiritual health of some sick people and some well people. But it's going to be a little different than they think. And Jesus is going to give us some insight of that as we look today at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. If you would stand as we read these few verses. Yeah, sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when He heard it, He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Let's pray. Father, we trust You this morning. We trust the power of Your Word. We trust the power of Your Spirit. We trust Your faithfulness to Your Word when You say that You'll show up and instruct us and teach us according to what we need in the moment by the power of Your Word and by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Have Your way with us. Convict us of our sins And Lord, would you breathe life into all of us, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. God, would you give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and we won't recap everywhere we've been, but we know that Matthew has been portraying Jesus as the King. Matthew, speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, is laboring to establish the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent from God to usher in the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus came Himself and proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And He would say later, The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It's within you. So... We've seen a lot of stuff between chapters 1 and 8. We're in chapter 9 now. But we left off last week with a room full of people seeing a paralyzed man dropped through a roof, 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 seeking healing from Jesus. And what did Jesus say to this paralytic? Well, first, Jesus had said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that got the scribes fired up. And they said to themselves, that Jesus was blaspheming or speaking in an inappropriate manner since it's not possible for any man to forgive sins. That's something only God can do. Well, Jesus knew their thoughts 
and what was going on in their hearts. And then he told the paralytic to rise, take his bed and go home. And then he said the reason he was saying that and doing that was so that they would all see that he, the Son of Man, Jesus, had authority on earth to forgive sins. That was the purpose of that miracle. The man did so, and the whole room, it said, was filled with awe and fear of Jesus. They were afraid, it said. And the room was also filled with glory to God for giving such authority to a man to forgive sins. So there's this coming into focus of who Jesus is, what He's actually capable of, what He was sent to do. So today, we see in our passage that Jesus is seeking to use that sin-forgiving authority in visible ways again. So the question we want to ask up front, the questions we want to ask up front are, who can have their sins forgiven? How many sins are too many to be forgiven? What kind of person or what kind of people are candidates for forgiveness of sins? Today's passage shows these things clearly and powerfully, and it comes in the form of the conversion of the author of this gospel, Matthew himself. So let's start with verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So yeah, here we are nine plus chapters in, and we finally meet the guy who wrote the book. Okay? Verse 9 says, as Jesus passed on from there. Well, we had left him in a house in Capernaum. That's where he had healed the paralytic, forgiven his sins, and people were in awe. So he's passing on from there, seemingly in the town of Capernaum, passing on. So it's like he's leaving, walking through, maybe leaving Capernaum. One way or the other, he's passing through Capernaum. And as he's going, he saw a man called Matthew. Now Mark and Luke at this point both call Matthew Levi. Again, not a problem here. Some people would say, oh, they're saying there's different names. It's, it was definitely common all through Scripture for people to have two names that they're called by. Back to the Old Testament. I mean, right, we saw it, you know, people have their names changed. Jacob to Israel, Abram to Abraham. Some people call people different names in different places, different situations. We do the same thing, Right? Anybody got any nicknames? Yeah, I've told y'all before I had an uncle that called me Booger. Don't do it. Just, I don't care. But when I was at his house, I was Booger. When he was at my house, I was Booger. And so if somebody was recording something about that day when my uncle was there, he said to Booger. And everybody's like, who's Booger? I'm like, that's me. Thank you very much. So we do this. I mean, it's not weird for somebody to have two names. But here, Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit, refers to himself as Matthew. I don't know that that's super significant, but God doesn't do anything by accident, right? The name Matthew means gift of God. If this was his birth name, and we don't know if it was Matthew or Levi, I don't know what his birth name was, but if Matthew was his birth name, it would mean that his parents saw him as a gift from God himself, blessing them with his birth as a gift. And that's all soft and fuzzy, isn't it? Oh, y'all got a Matthew, right? You're like, oh, Matthew. But guess what? The folks in Capernaum would not have seen Matthew as a gift from God. Quite the opposite, actually. You see, Matthew was sitting where? At the tax booth. 
Matthew worked for the RRS, the Roman Revenue Service. Okay? And that's loaded with meaning. You see, the Jews of Jesus' time had a particular distaste for tax collectors. The Jews would still be tithing and offering to the temple for their worship, 10 plus percent of their income. Okay? But then they would also be taxed by Rome. And Rome was ruling them over most of the known world at that time, but over this nation of Israel, and they had to pay taxes to Rome. So think of it like this. Think if America got taken over. Let's say Canada. Don't get your hopes up, Arlene. Don't don't do it. Yeah, right, Arlene Smith. But say they took us over, okay, and they had to fund all the caribou and stuff that are up north, and they start taxing us for that. So it's one thing to pay taxes, okay, if you're an American and your taxes are being used for American things, but if your taxes are being used for Canadian things, well, that ain't cool, right? It's not cool, Arlene. I don't care what you think. (laughs) And Andrew McKay, if you listen to this, it's not cool. So. So we'd hate paying taxes, and we would really hate that our taxes went to our conquerors. Well, that's exactly what was happening here with the Jews of Israel at this point. And you had certain taxes that were set for property and other fixed things. You know, if you owned a piece of property, you're going to pay this much tax, whatever. <clears throat> and there were certain people appointed to collect taxes for Rome. But there are other people, usually local people, who could basically buy a tax franchise from Rome. Okay? Taxes. You know, they're just popping up everywhere. And usually every community had one person who uh, had their own... Um, tax franchise, and they could tax pretty much anything they wanted to tax, okay? And now get a hold of this, okay? They could tax goods, they could tax road use, they could tax animals, carts, horses, fish, whatever business you ran, and on and on and on. It was pretty much up to this person to decide what they taxed and how much. And of course they had to give Rome a certain amount, but anything they could get above and beyond was theirs to keep. And seeing as how most of them were very wealthy, they probably were pretty good at what they did, which means they were taxing people to death and making a fortune doing it. And here is the tax collector in Capernaum, a man named Gift from God, or Matthew. Now Capernaum is a thoroughly Jewish town, And here in Capernaum, anything bought, sold, had, or wanted would have been taxed by Matthew. Matthew, a Jew. Matthew, a Jew. How do you think they felt about him? He basically sold his soul to Rome and was working for them and for himself. I cannot imagine how much these hard-working fishermen hated this man, Matthew. When they hauled in a good catch, they were probably thinking, I'm going to have to give Matthew more money than I would have if I'd had a smaller catch. He probably charged them so much per fish or whatever, or to maintain their dock or their boats or for owning nets. It's hard to tell what he taxed them for. And the religious folk would have been charged for who knows what too. Their offerings maybe. You're bringing a sheep through here, you've got to pay me a tax. So they would have a certain kind of hatred for this Matthew fella, these Jews. 
John MacArthur says this guy Matthew would have been considered, quote, the worst man in the city. Continuing the quote, As far as the people were concerned, he was the most wretched human being in their town. They hated him. They paid him because they were afraid not to. And MacArthur says this too. Do you know what the rabbi said? For these tax collectors, repentance is well nigh impossible. You getting the picture here? This wasn't just, I don't like paying my taxes. This was, we hate this guy because he's a fiend. He's a jerk. And he's a Jewish jerk. He's one of us. And now he sold his soul to Rome. There are Jewish writings that make it clear that tax collectors like Matthew would be barred from the synagogue too. They couldn't come and publicly worship. These guys were just flat out hated. And here comes Jesus walking by. And he sees Matthew, maybe the most universally hated man in Capernaum. And what does Jesus do? He walks by and he says, follow me. I say, what now? Can you imagine the disciples and what they thought? They're getting ready to spit on the ground as they walk by Matthew. Matthew, gift of God. Can you imagine what they were saying, what they thought? Maybe what they said to each other, the faces they've been making. Listen, Jesus, I know you're a pretty smart guy and you're doing all kinds of miracles and cool stuff and forgiving sins and all that, but not this guy. Not this guy. Do you know who he is? You see where he's at? You see where he's sitting? You see what he does? He's sitting in the tax booth, Jesus, and he's robbing people blind. Is that the kind of person you want following you and being your disciple? But can you imagine what Matthew was thinking? Me? Well, we know what he was thinking because the next sentence says, and he rose and followed him. Now being headquartered in Capernaum, Matthew would have heard of and probably seen so much of what Jesus had been doing. So this wasn't like a cold call. Some stranger walks by and says, follow me. That's not what's going on here. Jesus was popular all the way up into Syria and down past Jerusalem and Judea. People knew who Jesus was. Matthew knew who Jesus was. He knew what he'd been doing. He might even been trying to figure out how to tax his miracles. Oh, you got healed by Jesus? That's a tax. You got to pay me. 20 bucks if you got your sight back. That's right. Give it to me. I don't know. But this certainly was not a cold call, just showing up and asking a guy to blindly follow. No, it was Jesus, the miracle-working, sin-forgiving rabbi, well-known far and wide, inviting, when I would say no, not really inviting, really confronting the most hated of the hated and commanding that he forsake the wealth of the tax booth and come learn from Jesus. And make no mistake, if Matthew walked out of that tax booth, there was somebody ready to slide in right behind him. So there was no going back if he walked out of the tax booth. Somebody wanted that money. And either Rome would have appointed somebody or somebody else would have bought his spot and said, I'll collect the taxes if you're going to leave your booth. Peter and the boys could probably go back to fishing anytime they wanted if things didn't work out. But Matthew was instantly confronted with a do-or-die moment. And he heard the call of Jesus, and he responded with a resounding yes. 
indicated by the simple phrase, and he rose and followed him. Wow. What a moment. And again, we can just brush over the, oh yeah, Matthew followed Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. But but that's a weird transition, right? Jesus is passing by. He calls a guy named Matthew. Come follow me. Matthew follows him. And now all of a sudden Jesus is reclined at the table in the house. You know, was it like a rapture moment? Poof, here we are. No, no. Jesus is walking by the tax booth. Matthew follows him. And then verse 10 has Jesus reclining at table in the house. What? What? What table? What house? Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke does. Luke 5.29. And Levi, Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. It was Matthew's table. It was Matthew's house that Jesus was reclining at and in. Matthew started following Jesus and then invited Jesus to his house for what Luke calls a great feast. Once your enemy, now seated at my table. That's what Matthew said. Come, I, I want, you want me to follow you? Yes, I'll follow you. Come, come to my house. I want to celebrate this wretched, nasty, disgusting tax gatherer is full of gratitude for losing his job. And becoming a disciple of Jesus. So he throws a great feast, Luke says. Matthew wants to show some love to his new rabbi, so he brings him home for dinner. Well, who do you think Matthew invited to this feast? He didn't hang out with the nice people. Nobody'd be around him. He'd make them dirty. He'd defile them. He was an outcast to the good and decent folks of the town, so he invited the people he was familiar with, the people that he hung out with. Many tax collectors and sinners. Now read that again. Tax collectors and sinners. A large company of tax collectors, Luke says, and others, but Matthew says, and sinners. Now imagine this dinner party. A bunch of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus and His disciples. Big feast. And Jesus is just reclined at the table having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, the sinless Son of God and His disciples, the newest of which was the most despised man in Capernaum, having a great feast with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is chilling with the villains. That's right. Who else would be there? Not good, decent people. They wouldn't associate with this hive of scum and villainy. These are the people that Matthew hung out with. These are the people that Matthew knew. Whether or not it was his choice or not, it didn't matter. These are just the people that he knew and he was familiar with. These are the people he could invite to his house. And Jesus is there in all of his glory. Well, how do you think that went over with everybody else in town? Especially his Pharisaic antagonists. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Well, praise God for doing such a work. No. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Ah, the Pharisees. Defender of all things right and religious. Seems like the disciples have come out of the den of sin with toothpicks in their mouths, patting their bellies, only to come face to face with the dinner police. There's no way in the world that the Pharisees would have went inside for this atrocious sin fest. They were too holy for that. It would have made them unclean. But they would surely be outside passing some not-so-silent judgment on these proceedings. And when the disciples came out, they run into, they ran, they run into some point-blank questioning from the Pharisees. And they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, be clear, this is not just about eating. That would have been bad enough. But eating with people was a sign of intimacy. It was sharing life with somebody. Breaking bread, reclining at the table. That was to share life with somebody. And the Pharisees want to know why Jesus and His disciples would share life with bad people. People like tax collectors and sinners. And again, when you think sinners, think sinners, prostitutes, Drug dealers. Who knows what else? Fill in your favorite sin to dislike there. Those are the people that Jesus and His disciples are sharing a meal with. Bad people who did bad things. And these people didn't try to put on an act. They didn't try to be religious. Why? They didn't care. They weren't trying to be religious. They didn't care about your religion. I'm rich. I'm doing fine. These are my friends. We do bad stuff together and we like it. They didn't look, act, or try to be religious. So why, Jesus? Why would you and your disciples do that? Disciples, why would your master and you do that? They just can't fathom it. And they surely are hoping it's some kind of explanation that would confirm their suspicions of Jesus being a fake and a phony. They really hoped it was some explanation that would peg Him as the sinner that they just knew that He was. Which had been their their clear conclusion from the beginning. They want kind of that aha moment. We just knew it from the moment we met Him. From the moment we saw Him, we just knew He was a sinner. So explain this, you filthy fishermen. Explain your forays into sin with these disgusting people. Explain why Jesus would pick somebody like Matthew to be his disciple. We knew it. We knew he was a sinner. You're all sinners. Why else would this dinner party be happening here with these people? Well, guess what, Pharisees? When you mess with the bull, you get the horns. And the Pharisees get the horns of Jesus after messing with his disciples. Turns out, he catches wind of what's going on with the Pharisees and his disciples, and he answers the Pharisees, verse 12. But when he heard it, Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So somehow, Jesus catches wind of this conversation. He is prone to know what's going on whenever, wherever, whoever. And here it says, but when he heard it. Jesus heard what was going on with the Pharisees and his disciples and he came and gave them an answer to their question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. That's why. Jesus is saying he's not just enjoying a nice spread at his new guy's house. He's got a plan. Jesus has a purpose in what he's doing at Matthew's. He's got a plan and a purpose in what he's doing on earth. Turns out this guy Jesus is on a rescue mission. A mission to find people who need help. Why would you eat with sinners? Because they're in need of what I can give them. Why would you eat with sinners? Because they're like sick people who need a doctor. They need help and I've come to help them. I eat with sinners because their need is evident. As for the rest of you folks who are, well, well, you don't think you need help. So I don't eat with you. Why do I eat with sinners? Because unlike you self-righteous, works-performing religious fakers, they aren't putting on a show and acting like they're okay. They're sin sick and they are in need of the healing and the help that I can give them. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But the indication is that these here who think they are well really are not. They have a cancer eating them up on the inside that will ultimately kill them. But they don't want to go to the doctor because they don't think they need it. In their minds, they're healthy. They're doing everything right. But these sinners, they know that they're filled with sin. They know that they need a new direction. They need a new hope. They need something outside of themselves, outside of their self-destructive behaviors. Jesus eats with sinners because they can see their need for Him. And He can see their need for Him as well. They're sick and He has the cure. Actually, they're sick and He is the cure. And so here, He doesn't wait for the sinners to come to Him. He goes to them. Just like a good physician. Or more accurately, the good physician. Going to where needs are. Going to where sin is in order to overcome it and to bring life. Luke records the conversion of another wee little man who was a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And after his conversion, Jesus says this in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says He came for this very reason. Jesus says He came to seek and to save lost people. Jesus came, listen... For sinners. Jesus came to earth for sick people. The worst of the worst. The people who wouldn't fit in right here this morning. That's who Jesus came for. I mean, just look at who he spent so much of his time with up to this point of Matthew. Reject fishermen, lepers, paralytics, sick people, sinners. Why? Because it's always been God's design. Always. Look at verse 13. Jesus goes on to say to the Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's just say this is a knock the wind out of you type of moment for the Pharisees. 
This is a gut shot with buckshot. Jesus hits them where it hurts. He uses their scriptures, their Bible, the ones... The, the, the Bible that they were so faithful with and the Bible that they were so intent upon learning and memorizing and knowing and, and reading and having their quiet time and making sure that they were isolated from the world and surrounded by things that are holy. It's those scriptures that Jesus uses to punch them in the gut. The ones that He wrote by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He uses those scriptures to tell them why, what they should have been doing what Israel should have been doing this whole time. The phrase, go and learn what this means, was Jewish rabbis speak for you should know this by now. It's a common phrase. The rabbis would use it as a rebuke of those who should have known better about something. And now this poor bastard rabbi from Nazareth was schooling the religious elite with the true meaning of the Bible they would have said to have loved. His rebuke takes them to the book of Hosea. In our Bible, it's Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So when Jesus said that quote, they would know that it came from Hosea. And they would know the context that it was in. And in this context, God was telling Israel that He didn't want their external obedience devoid of true heartfelt love and intimate knowledge of God. Israel of Hosea's time was sacrificing and doing all the externals, but they were missing the whole point. And here, back in Matthew, Jesus is calling religious Israel's attention back to that same point. You think it's any coincidence that Jesus is pointing out a verse from a book that has God calling a righteous man to marry a harlot? And then by her back, after she goes back into whoredom after they're married, you think that's a coincidence? I doubt it. Talk about mercy. And Jesus is answering the Pharisees' questions with the real reason God reached down into this world in the first place. God had always wanted Israel to be a manifestation of His love for lost people. God's saving work started after Adam and Eve sinned, right in the beginning. He covered their nakedness with the skins of the animals that were sacrificed for that very purpose. Mercy in motion. He had called a a lowly moon worshiper and mercifully opened his barren wife's womb at age 90. He mercifully delivered the slave nation of Israel from Egypt and mercifully gave them the land he had mercifully promised their forefather all those years before. And He called them to live in a separate manner from their neighbors, yes, but to do so so that those sinful nations around them might see the mercy, grace, and glory of God through His people. They were to reach out and be a light to the nations so that the whole earth would be blessed because of them. But they had turned inward. And they focused on their self-inflating religion of sacrifice and ritual, performing their deeds to congratulate themselves instead of laying their lives down for the lives of those around them. They found the other nations odious in comparison to themselves. They were God's people. And all the other nations were just filthy dogs. But God desired mercy, not sacrifice. 
And he had made that appeal through Hosea all those years ago. And they missed it there and they're missing it again here in Jesus' time. And Jesus is saying, learn the ABCs again. God's plan is about mercy for sinners. His whole plan is about mercy for sinners. For, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Israelites had this vision of them being holy and righteous and God sweeping in and saying, come rule with me because you're holy and righteous. And Jesus is saying, I've come to call sinners, not holy and righteous people. He came to call not the righteous but sinners. Jesus, God in the flesh, is finally doing what He had wanted His people to do for so long. He's reaching out to sinners, not running from them. Helping the helpless, not condemning them for their helplessness. Because you see, righteous people, people who see themselves as righteous in and of themselves, have no place in this kingdom that Jesus the King is revealing in His earthly ministry. They don't need Him. Because His purpose is to help, heal, deliver, serve, and save. But those who know they have needs, those who have a desire to be helped, those Matthew 5-3 people who are crouching beggars at the front door of the kingdom of God, that's the people that Jesus is looking for. You can't call the righteous people to be saved because they've painted themselves into a corner of their own deeds and they can't get out. But the hopeless and helpless need only cry out and watch God do what God does. And what God does is save sinners. And Jesus is showing in plain daylight to everyone who it is that He's after. Jesus Christ is after sinners. Jesus Christ is after lost people. Jesus Christ is looking for those who know that they need help. And He's saying, you should be doing the same thing. You should be extending mercy, not giving sacrifice to appease your own conscience. Sinners, not the righteous. Mercy, not sacrifices. Go and learn that. You hypocritical Pharisees. And I think he would confront us with the same truth today, right? How are we doing with this? Listen, there's not much more in the world that I love than this. I love it. It is great. It is wonderful. And I look forward to Sundays to be with you folks, to be in the presence of the people of God. It is a holy, precious privilege. But if this is all I want in my Christian life, I'm wrong. If I don't have a desire to go out there and to seek out sinners, there's something wrong with my Christianity. It's self-serving, not others-serving. So what are we going to do? Of course, we've got to apply this text. It's a short text. We've got three F's. 
family, forsake, and find. Family, forsake, and find are our three application points. Family, forsake, and find. Jesus walks by the tax booth and he sees a tax collector. And he says, follow me. Now, anybody ever be a part of any like team building exercises? Right? Yeah, you want to find people who fit the mold. You want to find people who kind of have the same goals and the same vision, right? And you want to mesh together, all pulling together the same rope. And you don't want to bring in that person who's going to disrupt everything. That's stupid. And Jesus does that right here. He's got these devout Jewish fishermen and other people. Some of the people that he's got in his men, in his group of men, are passionately Jewish people. How do you think they felt about Matthew? I guarantee you they hated him. And Jesus says, come hang out with us. Follow me around. And these guys, and they're all going. "Mm." Matthew's like, okay. Look at the diversity of Jesus' 12 guys. He's got 12 guys who are his inner circle. One of them's the devil. Judas is a devil. Jesus knew that. Didn't catch him by surprise. And here he had these 12 men walking around with him, living life with him for three and a half years-ish. And then he sends 11 of them out to go change the world. One of which was Matthew. Matthew who wrote this book of the Bible that we're studying right now. This hated tax collector. How does Jesus get these guys to work together? Let me read the list in Matthew of the 12 disciples. We'll see it when we get to chapter 10 in a few weeks. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Funny that Matthew refers to himself as the tax collector, by the way. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay. Now, look at Mark 2.14. This is Mark's account of when Matthew was called. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So we've got a piece of information there from Mark that we didn't get in Matthew. Who was Matthew's dad? Alphaeus. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus. Same Alphaeus? Don't know. Maybe. But let me tell you what, it would have been very, very common for a tax collector to get disowned by his family. Because I guarantee you, he was taxing his family. Is it possible that Matthew and James were brothers? but that James didn't associate with him anymore because he had been disowned? Very possible. Very possible. And Jesus says, come follow me. If this is his brother, your brother's here. 
And James is like, but don't just stop there. Simon the Zealot, the Zealots had pledged to kill any Jew who had pledged fealty to Rome, loyalty to Rome. Judas Iscariot, Iscariot comes from the Sakari dagger that the Iscariots would carry around to kill anybody who had pledged allegiance to Rome. So Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot normally, when they come into contact with Matthew, would have killed him on the spot. And Jesus says, I want you to come follow me with these guys. Herb Hodges, hopefully you all have read this. Some of this is going to be duplicate information, but listen to this. He says that James, the son of Alphaeus, was probably the mildest one in this group. And he's talking about uh, the last three, uh, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Listen to what he says. Uh, uh, Judas, surname Iscariot, may well derive from the Sicarii, the little dagger carried by certain revolutionaries with which they had pledged, to kill, pledged themselves to kill any Roman official whom they would reach in a crowd or anywhere for that matter. He says, here's an interesting feature. There's substantial evidence that James and Matthew, both called sons of Alphaeus, were brothers. Does this stimulate great thought in you, he says? Why was one, Matthew, a traitor to Rome, having given his life to exacting taxes from the Jews for the despised Roman government? Why was the other, James, an ardent Jewish patriot? And you'd have to read the rest of why he says he's a Jewish patriot. Did one react against the other's extreme views and actions? Did James' patriotism drive Matthew toward Rome? Or did Matthew's defection drive James into ardent political and revolutionary action? Or neither? Any argument we may give is weakened by scriptural silence, but the question surely arouses speculation. The man who is called the zealot is named by his identification with the furious, furiously patriotic, rebellious, and violent political party bearing that name. Did you know that if Simon the Zealot had met Matthew the publican under normal circumstances, he would have killed him as quickly as possible? And then he says this, listen to me. Do you see why I believe that Jesus' greatest miracle was not feeding the hungry by multiplying food or healing sick people or even raising the dead? To me, His greatest miracle was the construction out of impossible material of a band of 12 men who would send the shockwaves of spiritual reproduction to the ends of the earth of that day. And had not the church replaced the strategy of Jesus, which is building individuals, with a suitable substitute that surely originated from another source, building imploding institutions, those shockwaves would be impacting the ends of the earth today and would continue to do so unabated until the end of time. The fact that Jesus walked around with these 12 guys and imparted the gospel message to them and then said, now go and change the world, is a miracle. Maybe you're sitting here today and there's somebody you're thinking, "Mm, I hope it's not him, I hope it's not her that God brings into our midst. Guilty. Somebody says, what church you go to? And you're like, eh. Uh, just up the road here. Do you have those people in your life? Maybe you don't. I hope you don't. 
But God takes these ragtag bunch of people who would have normally hated each other and He makes a family out of them. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit and there are varieties of service but the same Lord and there are varieties of activities but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone for to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God brings the people that He brings into His kingdom for a specific purpose and that's the common good. Newsflash... You were not saved for yourself. You're saved and given gifts and empowered by the Holy Spirit to benefit these people, all these people. And not just these people in this room, but all of God's people to the ends of the earth until the end of time, right? And those people out there somewhere, maybe they're even believers who are like, I don't really want to associate with them. Again, do you got those people? I do. It's been very convicting for me. Maybe God's saying, I could make a family out of this mess. I've done it before for the common good. Now, I'm not talking about compromising doctrine. We will not because we cannot. Those few essential things that we have to have in place to work with somebody the few essentials of the gospel have to be in place. We're not going to compromise that and work with people who are preaching a false gospel. But the people who are, we need to be diligent to seek out people who are not like us in their faith, but who believe the same things we do and watch God make a family out of us. We're very insulated in this church, I'm afraid. We like what we do, and I love what we do. Again, I'm not saying change anything. But maybe we should rub elbows and shoulders and hearts with people who aren't exactly like us. Why? Look at this. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Listen, one day you're going to stand in the company of a multitude of people who aren't like you. And we're going to be one big giant, eternal, happy family. And we're all going to glorify and worship and praise God together. I think we need to get a little bit uncomfortable and find the other members of our family that we should be working with to the praise and the honor of the Lamb. And it's like practice because we're going to do it anyway. Other nations, Japan... Poland, China, Korea. I praise God for the diversity that He's brought into this group of people. Kind of yucky being a white middle class church. I didn't like it. I liked it for a little while, but then I didn't like it anymore. Just being honest. God makes family out of unlikely people.
And we should be seeking that out. That's application point one, family. Forsake. We've got to hurry. I want you to look at Matthew's forsaking all to follow Jesus. We've had this in the, as an application point many times before, but I can't pass it by. Nothing, 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 nothing can rival Jesus in the life of the disciple. No sin, and we've all got the sins that we kind of like to hold on to because we like them, or we feel like we can't help. It's not true. No sin, no desire, no predisposition, no family, no pet doctrine, no job, no person, no bank account, no nothing can rival Jesus in the life of the disciple. And so I would ask you in this forsake application point, what are you not willing to let go of in order to follow Jesus? Because that's what he would put his finger on this morning, this afternoon now. And I think he looked at those disciples as Matthew walked out of that tax booth. And again, this is conjecture. I don't know this for sure. As a way of saying, he's doing exactly what you did. He's walking away from everything as a sign to show that this is the real deal. Think of the guys that we saw back in Matthew 8 that gave conditions for their following Jesus. Remember those guys? I'll follow you anywhere. Foxes have holes, birds here have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Jesus confronted them and said they were to follow now, and they were to follow now completely. Listen to me, church. There's not an option to retain our wants, our desires, and our timetable if we're going to follow Jesus. Matthew shows what it's supposed to look like in his response to Jesus' call. No ifs, ands, or buts. Just complete obedience to the effectual call of the Lord of Lords. Again, we've used this scripture several times in application points, but I can't help it. It's just too good. Paul says, whatever gain, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever it is that you're holding on to that's keeping you from knowing Him better, whatever culturally appropriate sin that you're holding on to and justifying in your head, it's not worth it. He's better. He's greater. And He will satisfy you like nothing else and nobody else can. Count it all but loss. The word is actually dung. It's crap compared to Jesus. And we don't believe that sometimes because we like it. But Matthew forsook it all. All of it got up and walked away. And I'm sure that he had some glowering eyes looking at him as he got in line behind the disciples and pecked on Jesus' shoulder and said, Hey, why don't you come to my house? I want to make you a meal. 
Let me ask you this, seriously. Have you forsaken everything to follow Jesus? Because that's the call. You're like, does that mean that I've got to live in poverty? Nope, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that you've got to pack up and go to China, even though that's a good thing to do. But it means that I hold nothing in my heart above Jesus. And that I want to know Him more than I want to sin. I want to know Him more than I want to be with my family. I want to know Him more than I want that next deposit in my bank account. That next pleasure. I want Jesus more than all of that. That's what it means to forsake everything. But the good news is this. You get Jesus. And He's better. The rest of that stuff becomes like garbage in comparison. Family forsake and finally, finally, find, F-I-N-D. Here's the deal. Jesus came to seek sinners out. And we as His people have to be doing the same thing. How cruel, y'all have heard this analogy before, how cruel of it would it be, how cruel of a doctor would it be to have the cure for cancer and say, you know what, I'm just not going to share it with anybody. We've got the cure. We've got the answer. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes. The gospel, the story about Jesus. We've got to go out. We've got to leave this place and these people that we love so much and we've got to go find sinners. Sinners. Disgusting people. Dirty people. And we've got to preach the gospel to them. We have to. I'm not talking about lifestyle evangelism, not sinning to reach sinners. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus went into this dinner and remained the spotless, sinless Son of God. But I'm talking about reaching out to sinners with the gospel for the sake of seeing them saved. Compassion. Wanting healing and wholeness for the lost. Broken, sinful, sick people made whole. This is Christ-like. We saw earlier, Luke 19.10, that Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And we saw Him doing just that in our passage from Matthew today. He would reiterate that mission as He handed it off to His disciples in Acts 1.8, which I don't have in here, but I'll read it for you where he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And listen to me, the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus was going to energize his disciples to do what? To be his witnesses, to be his messengers to the ends of the earth. And what was their message? Here it is. Then He, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There's the message. 
Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, guess what? People who don't think that they need forgiveness for sins are not going to repent. It's sinners. It's lost people. Not Appalachian Christianity that says, my granddaddy preached here and my daddy preached here and my brother's preaching here, so we're all right. Just because you've been around it all your life doesn't mean that you don't need to repent. And that is a rock-hard shell around this area of ours. We've always known about it. We've always heard it. We're so familiar with it, and people just don't get it. So we go out into the highways and the byways, and we find the sin-sick people who need hope, and we preach the gospel to them. The gospel that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name. That's what we're to be witnesses of. You are witnesses of these things. Let me ask you a question as we finish. When's the last time you sought out a sinner to preach the gospel to? God, point me in the direction of the worst of the worst. Somebody who knows that they need deliverance. Somebody who knows that they need healing. Somebody who knows that they're sinful. And let me preach the gospel of repentance to them. You ever pray that? These disciples, these 11 men after Judas hung himself, were simply carrying his message, doing his work, reaching out to sinners who needed saving. They were applying the great physician's healing balm on the wounded sinners they came into contact with. And we should be doing the same. And then he brings them into our midst and now they're our family. They forsake everything and follow him just like we did. And they go out and they find sinners who need to repent. It's a beautiful, powerful cycle. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. Let's seek out sinners and let's preach the gospel to them. And let's watch God save them. There is nothing more glorious in the universe than that. The angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. They don't do that for righteous people who don't see a need for repenting. They're not going to come to us. They don't know it right now. But when they're confronted with the truth of the gospel, they'll see their need for it. They'll be converted. Let's see lost people saved. Like Matthew, like his buddies. Let's pray. God, we're talking about things that are too great for us in and of ourselves. But they're not too great for you. This is what you came to do, Jesus. You came to seek and to save the lost. Help us to be about that business, God. For your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of the souls of sinful people. Break our hearts for lost people, God. Break my heart for lost people. And help us to be faithful to preach your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive a doxology, a benediction, a good word. Now to him 
who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.